Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Daniel Wilson. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling Robopocalypse and its sequel, Robogenesis, as well as other books, including How to Survive a Robot Uprising, A Boy and His Bot, and Amped. He earned a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University and a master's degree in AI and robotics as well. His newest novel, The Clockwork Dynasty, was released in August 2017. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hi, Byron. Uh, thanks for having me. So how far back, the earliest robots, I guess they began in, in Greek myth, or in, in, yeah, Greek myth, didn't they? Yeah, you know, so it's something I've been thinking a lot about because automatons play a major part in my novel, The Clockwork Dynasty. I started thinking about, you know, how, how far back does this uh, desire to build robots or, or lifelike machines really go? Yeah, and if you start to look at history, you'll see that it kind of, we have actual artifacts from the last few hundred years. And then before that, we have a lot of stories. And then before that, we have mythology. And, and it does go all the way back to, to Greek mythology. People might remember that um, Hephaestus supposedly built tripod robots to serve the gods on Mount Olympus. And yeah, that's right. They, that had to, uh, they had to like chain them up at night, didn't they? Because they would wander off. <laughs> I don't remember that part, yeah, but it I wouldn't think... surprise me. I think that was a, rep- yeah, there was a, yeah, that, that was written somewhere. Someone reported they had visited and, <laughs> and that was true. Um, and, and I think there's a, uh, you know, the giant bronze uh, robot that guarded, I think it was Crete, that um, was called Talus. Or, um, and that was another, another one of, uh, I think, Hephaestus's creations. So yeah, you know, there are stories about lifelike machines that go all the way back into, you know, prehistory and into mythology. I think even in the story of Prometheus, in its earliest tellings, it was a robot eagle that actually flew down and plucked his liver out every day. Oh, really? Um, I, I remember that. I always, so, of course, loved uh, the little robot from um, from Clash of the Titans, you know, the robot Al. <laughs> Do you remember his name? <laughs> no, no, no. Bobo or something. <laughs> uh-huh, it's funny. Um, so... D- did, do you have a theory about, like, why? So those were not, even at the time, considered scientific devices, right? They were animated by magic or something else. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, what do you think of that? Like, where did that, because nobody looked at a, at a bunch of tools and said, aha, I can build a mechanical device here. So where do you think it came from? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think obviously human beings are really fascinated with themselves, right? You think about Galatea, of course, and like uh, creating sculptures and creating, you know, imitations of ourselves and, and of animals, of course. And so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all that people have been trying to build this stuff for a really long time. What is kind of interesting to consider is to look at how it's evolved over centuries and centuries, you know, because you're right. Um, one thing I found, you know, doing research for this novel is that it's really fascinating to me. Our, con- our concept of the scientific method and the idea of 
of the world as a machine that we can pick up the pieces and build new things and we can figure out underlying physical principles and things like that. That's a real, really relatively new viewpoint that human beings haven't really had for that long. And, you know, looking at automatons, I've, I saw that there's this sort of pattern uh, in that the longer we build these things, the, they really are living embodiments of this, of, of the world as a machine. Right. And, if you start to look at these automatons being built during the uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, medieval times, you know, and then up through um, around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you see that people like Descartes and, and philosophers who really helped us as a civilization solidify our viewpoint of, of the way nature works and the way that science works, uh, they were inspired by these automatons because they they showed. And a, a, a living embodiment of what it would be like if an animal were made out of parts, you know, and then you go and you dissect a real animal and you start to think, wait, maybe I can figure this out. Maybe it's not just God created it, walk away from it. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Um, maybe this, there's actually some rule or rhyme underneath this and we can figure it out. And I think that, you know, these kinds of machines actually really helps propel our civilization toward the technological age that we live in right now um, because because these philosophers were able to see this um, playing out. Now, just sorry, just to, not to prattle on too long, but one thing I also really love about um, specifically the medieval times is the notions of, of how this stuff worked were very set down, but they were all very magical, right? So, and there were different types of magic. That's what I really loved in my research, finding that whenever you see something like an aqueduct functioning, they would think of that as a natural kind of magic. Whereas if you had some geometry or some pure math, they would think of that as a celestial type of magic. But underneath all of it were always angels or demons. And always there was the suspicion that it was a necromantic art, you know, that, that this lifelike thing had been, is animated by a spirit of the dead. Or, you know. um, so there's so much magic and mystery that was um, laced into science at the time that, um, that I think it really hindered uh, the ability to develop, you know, to develop iter iterative scientific advancements um, at the time. So picking up on that a bit, do you, you know, you've got late 18th century, you've got Frankenstein, right? And Frankenstein was a mm -hmm. scientific creation, right? Like there was nothing magical mm -hmm. about that. That was, can you think of an example before Frankenstein where the, the animating force was science-based? The animating force behind some kind of a creature mm -hmm. um, or like lifelike automaton mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. was science-based. Yeah, you know, I, I really can't. I can think of lots of examples, but, you know, you think of stuff like golems and, uh, and things like that, and they're all kind of created by, by magic or by, or by uh, deities. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. I, I think that all of those ideas really culminated right around the time of the industrial revolution. And, and that was, they were really reflective of their time. Do you have any, um, do no, you have any no, 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 <laughs> no. I mean, I, what do you know about Da Vinci's robot? Uh, I mean, uh, not much. I know that he had lots of sketches for various mechanical devices, but, uh, but at least that would be, I mean, they, he of course couldn't build it because they didn't have the tools and, and, you know, I mean, it didn't matter what he could imagine, but, but obviously what Da Vinci would have made would have been a purely scientific thing um, in that sense. Yeah, 
Sure, but even if it were, that doesn't mean that he didn't have the mindset or that other people wouldn't have applied the mindset that they were that whatever his inventions were 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 powered by, you know, natural magic or some kind of <laughs> deity or, or spirit. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny that the people back then were were able to completely um, hold both of those ideas in their heads at once, right? They, they could completely believe the idea that uh, whatever they were creating was was magical, and at the same time they were doing science. Um, it's it's such an interesting thing to, to contemplate being able so, to do science from that mentality. So let's go to the 1920s and talk to us about the play that gives us the word robot. <laughs> wow, this is like a quiz. This is great. <laughs> uh, so you're talking about RUR, I assume, the Capex mm -hmm. uh, Brothers play. Um, yeah, Rossum's Universal Robots. It's a, it's a play from the 20s in which, um, you know, a scientist creates a robot and uh, a race of robots. And then, of course, what do they do? They, uh, they rise up and overthrow humanity and they kill every single one of us. <laughs> so it's the, attributed with the as being the place where the, the term robot was coined. And, uh, and yeah, it plays out in the way that a lot of, that a lot of stories about robots have played out ever since. Um, you know, one thing I think that's interesting about RUR is that so often we use robots differently in our stories based on whatever, whatever con the context is of, of what's going on in the world at the time, because robots are really reflections of people, right? So, they're kind of this distorted mirror that we hold up to ourselves. And at that time, you know, people were worried about the exploitation of the working class. And so when you look at RUR, you know, that's pretty much what those robots embody. They are um, the children of men. They are working class. They rise up and they destroy their rulers. Um, and, and I think the lesson there is like clear for everybody in the 1920s <laughs> who went to go see that play. Um, you know, robots represent different things depending on you know, what's going on. So we've seen lots of other killer robots, but they've embodied or represented, you know, lots of different, lots of other different evils and fears that we have as people. So how do you think, would you call that 1920s version of a robot, like a fully formed image, the way we kind of think of them now, what would have been different about that view of the robots? Well, no. I mean, those robots were, I don't think they were even, they just looked like people. Um, I don't even think there was the idea that they were made of metal or anything like that. Um, you know, I think that that sort of image of the pop culture robot kind of evolved more in the 40s and 50s and 60s, right? With pulp science fiction, when we started thinking of them as big metal men, you know, like Gort from uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still or Robbie or all of these giant hunks of metal, you know, with lights and things um, that are more consistent, I guess, with, with like the technology of that time, which was like, you know, the, the dawn of rocket ships and, and stuff like that, and that kind of science fiction. So, no, I, I, from what I recall uh, in RUR, they, they aren't me mechanical at all. They're just like, uh, they're just like people. Well, here's what I'm struck Except by. they can't procreate. <laughs> right. Here's what I'm struck by that, that just, the reason I ask you if you thought they were fully modern, let me just read you this quote from the play and um, tell me what it sounds like to you. This is um, Harry Doman. He, he's one of, one of the characters and he says, in 10 years, 
Rossum's universal robots will produce so much corn, so much cloth, mm. so much of everything that things will be practically without price. There will be no poverty. All work will be done by living machines. Everyone will be free from worry and liberated from the degradation of labor. Everyone will live only to perfect himself. Yeah, it's like a, uh, <laughs> a utopian post post economy. Of course, it's built on the back of slaves, which is the point, I think, of the uh, of the play. Yeah, we're all going to have great lives and we're going to be standing right on the throats <laughs> of this race of slaves that are going to uh, sacrifice everything so we can have everything. Right. And, and, and I guess I'm struck by the fact that it seems very similar to what people's hope for automation is right now is that the factories will run themselves and that, uh, you know, who was it that said the factory of the future will only have two employees, a man and a dog, and the man's job will be to feed the dog, and the dog's job will be to keep the man from touching the machines. And that these yeah, factories I, will run themselves. Lately, I've been, I've been cooking up a little rant about this lately. <laughs> Honestly, I might as well launch into it. Uh, I think that that's a really naive and childish view of a future. And, and I'm starting to realize it more and more as I see the technology that we are receiving uh, from the first, this is sort of the first fruit, right? Because we've only just gotten speech recognition and to a level that's useful and gesture recognition and, and maybe a little bit of natural language and, and some computer vision. And, and we're getting, and, and then just general, you know, general AI pattern recognition. We're just now getting useful stuff from that, right? We're getting stuff like Alexa, or we're getting, you know, these mapping algorithms that can take us from one place to another. We're, Facebook and Twitter and all these things are, are choosing what they think are going to be most interesting to us. And, and I think this is very similar to what, you know, what that person was describing, or what they're describing in RUR as this perfect future where we do nothing. Well, like doing nothing is not perfect. Doing nothing sucks. <laughs> doing nothing robs a person of all of all their ability and all their potential it's not what we want but a child a person who just stumbled upon a treasure trove of this stuff that's what they would think that's like the first wish you'd make that would um, then make the rest of your life hell and that's what we're seeing right now we're seeing what I've been calling the candy age of, of artificial intelligence where people are researchers and technologists are going what do people want let's give them exactly what they say they want you know and then they do, and then we don't know how to get around in the cities that we live because we depend on a mapping algorithm. And we don't know the viewpoints that our neighbors have because we've never actually read an article that doesn't uh, tell us exactly what our worldview already is, right? I mean, there's a million examples. Talking to Alexa, I don't have to say please or thank you. I just order it around, and it just does whatever I say and delivers whatever I ask for. And I think that, and I hope that, as we get a little bit of a more of a mature view on technology and as the technology itself matures, we can reach a, a future in which the technology does not deliver exactly what we want, exactly when we want it, but the technology actually makes us better, right? In whatever way it can, you know, I would prefer that my mapping algorithm not just take me to my destination. I want it to help me know how to know where stuff is myself. I want it to teach me. I want it to make me better, right? not just give me something, but make me better. And I think that potentially that's the future of technology. It's not a future where we're all like those overweight 
uh, <laughs> helpless people from Wally, you know, <laughs> like leaning back in floating chairs uh, and doing nothing and wondering, you know, uh, and totally dependent on the machines. Um, I think it's a future where the where the technology makes us stronger, and that's and I think that's a more mature worldview and and you know idea of the future. Well, you know the the quote that I read though he said that everybody will spend their time perfecting themselves, and I don't know. Uh, I assume you're you you've uh, seen Star Trek before. Sure. Yeah. There's an episode <laughs> where um, the Enterprise thaws some people out uh, who were you know from the 20th century. And one of the guys' name is Offenhouse, and he's talking about, like, what do you do in a world where, you know, what's the challenge in a world where there's no material needs and hunger and all of that? And he said, Picard said, the, um, the challenge is to become a better person, make the most of it. And so th that's also um, part of the narrative as well, right? That that we can also that's yeah and, and i think that slots in kind of well with the alexa example you know so for instance so alexa is this is this ai that amazon has built that sits in your oh god and mine's talking to me right now because i keep saying her name <laughs> um it's this ai that sits in your house and, and you tell it what to do and you don't have to be polite to it and this is actually kind of interesting to contemplate right if your future with technology is a place where you are going to hone your a uh, sense of being the, the best version of yourself that you can be, right? Um, how are you going to do that if you're having interactions with lifelike machines in which you don't have to behave ethically, right? Um, where it's an okay to shout at Alexa, who, sorry, I got to whisper her name, <laughs> uh, who, who, by the way, sounds just exactly like a woman, right? And, and has a woman's voice and and uh, is therefore implicitly teaching you via your interaction with her that it's okay to shout at, at that type of a voice. I mean, um, I think it's, it's gonna be not a mutually exclusive thing where the machines take over everything and then you're free to be by yourself because technology is a huge part of our life. We're gonna have to work with technology in order to become the best versions of ourselves. Um, I think another example you could find easily is just looking at athletes, right? Um, every, the goal for an athlete is not to, you know, you, you don't gauge how fast a runner is by, by putting them on a motorcycle. They run, they're human. They're, they're perfecting something that's very human. And yet they're doing it in concert with extreme levels of technology <laughs> so that when they do stand on the starting mark, ideally under the same conditions that every other human has stood on the starting mark for the last, you know, however long, and then the, the pistol goes off and they start running, they're going to run faster than any human being who ever ran before. But the difference is that they're going to have trained with technology and it's going to have made them better. And, you know, that's kind of the non-mutually exclusive future that I, that I see or that I kind of uh, end up, you know, writing science fiction about since I'm not actually a <laughs> scientist and I don't have to actually do any of this stuff. Well, let me, let me take that idea and run with it for just a minute, <clears throat> just to set this up for the listener. Uh, in the 1960s, there was a man named Weizenbaum who wrote a program called ELIZA. ELIZA was a kind of a therapy bot, I guess we would think of it now. And you would say something like, I, I'm having a bad day. And it says, why are you having a bad day? And it says, uh, I'm having a bad day because of my boyfriend. And it says, why are, what about your boyfriend is making you have a bad day? And so it just, it's really simple, uses a few linguistic rules. And Weizenbaum saw people in, engaging with it and and even though they knew it was a machine, he saw them form emotional attachment. They would pour their heart out to it. They would cry. 
And he turned on AI, as it were. He, he did, deleted yeah. Eliza and said, when the computer says, I understand, it's just a lie because there's no I and there's no understanding. And he pushed back really hard on having, so he distinguished between choosing and deciding. And he said, deciding is something a computer can do, but choice is a human thing. And so he was against using computers at all in these settings where, uh, as substitutes for people, especially anything that involved mm -hmm. empathy. So is your observation about Alexa and all of that, that we need to program it to require us to say please, or we need to not give it a personality or something different? Oh, uh, absolutely. We need to just figure out ethical interactions and make sure that our technology encourages those. Um, I mean, and it's not about the technology, right? No one cares about whether or not you're hurting Alexa's feelings. She doesn't have any feelings. The question is, um, what kind of interactions are you setting up for yourself and, and what kind of behaviors are you implicitly encouraging in yourself? Um, because we get to choose the environments that we're in. And the difference between when Eliza was written and now is that we are surrounded by technology. Every minute of our lives has got technology. And at that time, you could, you could say, oh, let's erase the program. This is sick. This is messed up. Well, guess what, man? Like, that's not the world anymore. <laughs> like, well, I, I, every teenager has a real social network, and then they have a virtual social network that's bigger and stranger and more complex and possibly more rewarding uh, than, than the real people that's out there. And, and that's the environment that we live in now. And so it's, it's not a choice to say, turn it off, right? Uh, we're too far. So, you know, I think that the answer is to make sure that technologists remember that this is a dimension that they have to consider while they create technology. Um, and that's kind of a new thing, right? We didn't used to worry about like consumer products, you know, are people going to fall in love with the toaster? Are people going to get upset when the toaster <laughs> like goes kaput? Um, are people going to curse at the toaster and then become worse versions of themselves? Well, you know, that wasn't an issue then, but it is an issue now, right? Um, because we're having interactions with lifelike artifacts and therefore, you know, ethical dimensions have to be considered. I think it's a fascinating problem. Um, and, and I think that it's something that's going to really make people better in the end. So assuming we do make machines that simulate emotions, and so you can have a, a robot you can have a bot, you know, a best friend or, or what have you. Do you think that that is something that people will do? And do you think that that, that is healthy and good and positive? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. Like, you know, talking in terms of decision versus choice, like one thing that's always stuck with me is a moment in the movie AI when Gigolo Joe, who is uh, exactly what he sounds like, and he's a robot, uh, he looks at this woman in the eyes and he says, you are the most beautiful woman in the world, right? And, and immediately you look at that and you go, he's just a robot. That doesn't mean anything, right? Like, he just said, you're the most beautiful woman in the world, but his opinion doesn't mean anything, right? But then you look at it, you think about it for another second, and you realize he means it. He means that with every fiber of his being. And there's no human alive that could probably look at that exact woman at that exact moment and say, you're the most beautiful woman alive and really mean it. And so there's, you know, there's value 
there, right? Can you see how that value can exist when you realize this complete earnestness uh, versus, you know, a wider society might attribute a, a, a zero value to the whole thing, but at least he means it. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I can kind of see both sides of this. Um, I don't think, I'm judging now from the environment I live in right now, the context of the world that I have, I don't think it would be a great idea. I wouldn't want my kids to just have virtual friends that are robots or whatever, but yeah or no, like <laughs> I can't make that call for people 20 years from now. They could be living in a friggin' apocalypse, you know, where they don't have access to human beings. And the only thing they've got are, are virtual uh, characters to be friends with. I don't know what the future is going to bring, but, um, but, but I can definitely say that we're, we're going to have interactions with lifelike machines. There are going to be ethical dimensions to those interactions. Technologists had better figure out ways to make sure that those interactions make us better people and not monsters. You know, it's, uh, it's interestingly an old question. Do you remember that original Twilight Zone show about the guy who's he's on the planet by himself? I think he's in prison and they leave him a robot and then he gets a pardon or something and they go to pick him up and they only have room for him and uh, not the robot and he refuses to leave the robot and so he just stays you know alone on the planet and so it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that 50 years ago we looked in ahead and that was like a real thing that people thought about like are are synthetic emotions uh, as valuable to a human as as real ones and well, I assume you, you know, think we're definitely going to face that. Like, as a roboticist, I mean, we're certainly going to be able to build things that can look you in the eye and tell you you're beautiful and in a very convincing way, right? I, yes. I, I have a very humanist kind of viewpoint on this. I, you know, I don't think technology means anything without people. And I think that technology derives its value entirely from, from how much it matters to human beings. And part of me, you know, that gets very excited about this idea of, um, of the robot that looks you in the eye and says, I love you, is not, I'm not interested in replacing human relationships that I have, right? I mean, everybody, I don't know how many friends you, you have, but like, you know, I got like a couple friends, a couple of really good friends. That's all I can handle. <laughs> you know? I have my wife and my kids and my family. And like, I'm not looking to replace. I think most people are not looking to add more and replace all of their friends with machines. But what I get excited about is how storytelling is going to evolve because all of us are constantly scouring books and movies and television because we're looking for glimpses of those kinds of emotional interactions and relationships between people because we feed on that because we're human beings and we're designed to interact with each other and <laughs> we just love watching other human beings interact with each other. So, I mean, having written novels and comic books and screenplays and occasion the occasional video game, I can't wait to interact with these types of agents in a storytelling setting like where the game, where the story is literally human interaction, you know? So I've talked about this a little bit uh, before and some examples I've kind of cooked up. Like, what if, you know, it's like World War II, you know, World War I, you know, and you're in no man's land and there are mortars streaking out of the sky, blowing up, and your whole job for this story is to convince your 17-year-old brother 
to get his to get out of the crater and follow you to the next crater before he gets killed, right? And the job is not to carry a video game gun and shoot bad guys. Your job is to look him in the eyes and say, and beg him and say, I'm begging you. You have to get up. You have to be strong enough to come with me to go over here. I promised mom you would not die here, right? <laughs> and like you drag him over, you get him, you convince him to get up and go with you over the hill to the next crater. And, and that's how you pass that level of that story or that's how you move through that storytelling world. And that level of human interaction with an artificial agent, you know, where it's looking at me and it can tell whether I mean it and it can tell if there's emotion in my voice and it can tell if I'm committed to this. And it can also reflect that back to me accurately through the actions and of, of this artificial agent, man. Now that is going to be a really fascinating way to engage in a story. And, and I think it has, again, like I've been harping on the ability to make people better through, through empathy through sharing situations that they that they get to experience emotionally and then understand um, after that. So, you know, thinking about replacing things is, 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 is interesting, often depressing. I think it's more interesting to think about how, you know, we're going to evolve and, and try out new things and have new experiences um, with this type of technology. Let's talk a little bit about um, life and intelligence. So will the robots be alive are they do you think we're going to build living machines and and by asking you the question i'm kind of asking you implicitly to define life <laughs> uh so sorry let's let's back up do, the question is do we think we're going to build uh perfectly lifelike machines no 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 okay no <laughs> will we build machines that are alive whether they look at or I mean, whether they look human or not, I'm not interested in. Will they, will there be living machines? Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I only find that interesting in a philosophical way to contemplate. I don't really care about that question because at the end of the day, I think Turing had it right. You know, if we're talking about human-like machines and we're going to consider whether they're alive, which would probably mean that they need rights and things like that, then I think the proof is just uh, in the comparison, you know, like I'm making the assumption that every other human being is conscious. Um, I'm assuming I'm conscious because of what, because I'm sitting here feeling what executive function feels like. But uh, I don't, I think that that's a fine hoop to jump through human like level of a uh, human like level of intelligence. Uh, it's enough for me to give everybody else the benefit of the doubt. It's enough for them to give me the benefit of the doubt. So why wouldn't I um, why wouldn't I just use that same metric for a for a lifelike machine? And so to the extent that I uh, have been convinced that I'm alive or that anybody is alive, um, I'm perfectly willing to be convinced that a machine is alive as well. I, I would I would submit though that it is the farthest thing from a philosophical question because um, as you touched on, if the machine is alive, then it then it has certain it has certain rights. You can't have it you know, plunge your toilet necessarily or program it to just do your bidding. And if it isn't, like nobody thinks the bots we have now are alive. Uh, nobody worries. Well, we, that. Currently, we currently don't have a definition of, of life mm -hmm. that everyone agrees on, period. So throwing robots into that milieu is just a... Uh, well, we don't, have don't to have, we don't have to have a decision. We don't have to have a definition. We can, we, we can know the endpoints, though. We know a rock is not alive, and we know a human is alive. And so the question 
isn't our robots going to, you know, walk on some undefined gray area that we can't figure out. The question is, will they actually be alive? And if they're alive, will they be I, conscious? Uh, and, and if they're conscious, um, that is the furthest thing from a philosophical, it used to be a philosophical question when, when you couldn't even really entertain the question. But now, uh, I'm willing to alter that slightly. I'll say it's an academic question. I mean, if the first thing that leads off this whole chain is, uh, is it alive? And we have not yet assigned a definition to that symbol, the whatever, A-L-I-V-E, <laughs> um, then it becomes an academic discussion of what parameters are necessary in order to satisfy the definition of alive. And that is not really very interesting. I think what's more interesting is how are we actually going to deal with these things in our day-to-day -day lives? You know, so from a very practical, concrete manner, like I walk up to a robot, you know, the robot uh, is indistinguishable from a human being, which that's not a definition of alive. That's just a definition, right? It takes him far enough. Um, then how am I going to behave? What, what's going, what is my interaction protocol going to be? And, and, you know, I think that's really fun to contemplate. And it's something that we're contemplating right now in a very sort of, uh, like a very, at the very beginning of, of making that sort of call. So you think about all of these, uh, you think about all of the um, thought experiments that people are engaging in right now regarding autonomous vehicles, right? So I've, I've read a lot lately about, Okay, we got a Tesla here. It's fully autonomous. It's got to go left or right. Can't do anything else. There's a baby in front of it on the left and an elderly person on the right. What do we do? Right? And like, it's got to kill somebody. What's going to happen? And the fact is, like, uh, we don't know anything about the moral culpability. We don't know anything about the definition of aliveness or consciousness. But we've got a robot that's going to run over something and we've got to figure out how we feel about it. And I love that because it means that we're going to have to formalize our ethical values as a society. And I think that's something that's very good for us to consider. And, uh, and we're going to have to pack that stuff into these machines and they're going to continue to evolve. And my feeling is that I hope that by the time we get to a point where we can sit in armchairs and discuss whether these things are alive, they'll of course already be here. And hopefully we will have already figured out exactly how we do want to interact with these autonomous machines, whether they're vehicles or whether they're, you know, human-like robots or whatever they are, um, we will hopefully have already figured that out by the time we smoke cigars and, and consider what aliveness is. Well, let me try it again, if aliveness isn't the thing. So um, I, I ask the question because up until the 1990s, people, uh, veterinarians, were taught not to use anesthetic when they operated on animals because the theory was they couldn't. And on babies. Animals. I know, Human open heart surgery. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, was, that was scientific consensus, right? Um, and sure. so the question is, the question is, how, how would we have known? Today, we would look at that and say, that dog really looks like it's hurting. Um, and we, we, we would therefore be very intensely curious to know it. And of course, we call that <clears throat> sentience, the ability to sense something, generally pain. And we base our laws all on it, right? We, human rights sure. are derived in part because we're sentient and we, animal cruelty because the animals are. And yet, yet, you don't get in trouble for using antibiotics on bacteria because they are not being to be sentient. So all of a sudden, we're going to be confronted with something that um, says, ouch, that hurt. And either it 
it didn't, and we should pay that no mind well, whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> or it did hurt, in which case it's a whole different thing. And to have that convert to, to say, well, let's just wait till that happens and then we can sit around and discuss it academically, I think is, is not necessarily what I'm asking. I'm asking, how will we know when that moment changes? It sounds like you are saying we should just assume if they say they hurt, we should just assume that they do. And so by extension, if I, if I put a sensor on my computer and I hold a matchup to it and it hits 500 degrees and it says, ouch, I should assume that that is in pain. Is that what you're saying? No, uh, n not exactly. What I'm saying is there's going to be a lot of iterations before we reach a point where we have a perfectly lifelike robot that's standing in front of you and saying, ouch. And now what I said about believing it when it says that is that I hold it to the same bar that I hold human beings to, which is to say, if I can't tell the difference between it and a human being, then I might as well give it the benefit of the doubt. But that is, you know, that's pretty, that's really far down the line. And who knows, we might not ever even get there, but, but I assume that we would. Um, so, of course, that's not the same standard that I would hold a CPU to or whatever. I wouldn't consider the CPU as feeling pain. But my point is, every iteration up until we reach that perfectly lifelike human robot that's standing in front of us and saying, you hurt my feelings, you should apologize, um, is that the emotions that these things exhibit are only meaningful in so much as they affect the human beings around them. So I'm saying to program a, a machine that says, ouch, you hurt my feelings, apologize to me, is very important. As long as it looks like a person and there's some probability that by interacting with it as a person, uh, I could be training myself to be a serial killer <laughs> uh, without knowing it, you know, if it didn't require that I, that I treated it in any, with any moral um, care. D is that making any sense? Like, I don't want to kick a real dog, and I don't want to kick a perfectly lifelike dog. I don't think that's going to be good for me. You know, even if you could argue one dog doesn't feel it and the other dog does. And, you know, in the case that one of the dogs is a robot, I don't care about that dog actually getting hurt. It's a robot. What I care about is me training myself to be the sort of person who kicks a dog. So I want that robot dog to not let me kick it, to growl, to whimper, <laughs> to do whatever it does to invoke my human uh, whatever the human levers are that you pull in order to make sure that we are not serial killers. That makes any sense. So let me ask it a different way, a different kind of question. I call a 1-800 number of my airline of choice and, um, you know, and they try to route me into the automated system and I generally, you know, hit zero and because whatever. And I fully expect there's going to be a day soon uh, ish where I may not, I may be able to chat with the bot, you know, and do some pretty basic things uh, without even necessarily even knowing it's a bot. Now, when I have a person that I'm chatting with and they're looking something up, I make small talk or, uh, you know, whatever, ask about the weather or, or whatnot. And if, if I find myself doing that and then, you know, towards the end of the call, I figure out this isn't even a person, I will have felt both tricked and like I wasted my time. Like, what? I mean, there's, there's nothing there that, that heard me. 
Um, we yell at the TV, but we you don't heard yell. You. No, you well, heard you. Yeah. When you yell but, at the TV, you yell for a reason. You don't yell at an empty room for no reason. You yell for yourself. Right, but it you, would be you, hard. Your brain that is, <laughs> that is experiencing this, mm -hmm. uh, is there's not, no such thing as anything that you do that doesn't, get, that doesn't get added up and go into your personality and go into your daily experience and your dreams and everything that eventually is you. So whatever you spend your time doing, that's going to have an impact on who you are. And if, if you're yelling at a wall, it does not matter. You're still yelling. Right. But, but we, we really, don't you think that there is something different about interacting with the machine and interacting with the, with the human? I mean, that we would, well, by definition, I, I, do those differently. Kicking the, kicking the robot dog is not... Um, I mean, I don't think that's going to be what most people do, but they aren't going to, if, if the Tesla has to go left or go right and hit a robot dog or uh, a real dog, you know which way <laughs> yeah. it should go, right? And that well, well, dude, I mean, are you, so clearly the Tesla, we don't care what decision it makes. <laughs> We're not worried about the impact on the Tesla. We, I mean, the Tesla would obviously kill a dog. If it was a human being who had a choice to kill a, a robot dog or a real dog, we would obviously choose the robot dog because that would be better for the human being's psyche. <laughs> um, we could have fun like playing around with gradations, I guess, but again, I don't know. I'm, I'm just more interested in real practical outcomes, how to make lifelike artifacts that interact with human beings ethically, and what our real near-term future with that is gonna look like. Um, what, I'm just curious, what's, what's the future that you would like to see? What kind of interactions would you prefer to have, or none at all, with, with lifelike machines? Well, I'm, I'm far more interested in, like you, what's going to happen and how we're going to react to it. I think it's, it's going to be confusing, though, because we're used to things that speak in a human voice being a human. And I share yeah. some of Weizenbaum's uh, unease, not necessarily quite to the extent, but some unease that... Uh, if we if we start blurring the lines between what's what's human and what's not, that doesn't necessarily ennoble the machine. It may actually be to our own detriment. I mean, we had we had to go through thousands of years of civilization to get something we call human rights, and we do them because we think there's something uniquely special about humans, or at least about life. And to just blithely say, well, let's just start extending that elsewhere, I, I think maybe diminishes it because it it. it it, hmm. it devalues it, but enough, I, yeah. uh, enough, enough with that. Let me ask you a different one. Um, <laughs> okay. What do you see? You said you're far more interested in what are we going to do with these? What does the near future hold? What does the yeah. near future hold? Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of what I was ranting about before I, I, and exactly what you're saying. I, I really agree with you strongly that these interactions and, and, and what happens with us and our machines strongly puts a lot of power strongly in the hands of the people that make this technology. You know, so like this dopamine reflex, like uh, mouse pushing the cocaine button, you know, like way that we check our smartphones, that's really good for corporations. That's not necessarily great for individuals, you know? And, and it's, that's what scares me. If, if you ask me like what is worrisome about these future potential interactions we'll have with these machines and whether we should at all, I think a lot of it boils down to are corporations going to take any responsibility uh, for not harming people um, if they, once they start to understand better how these interactions play out, right? And, you know, uh, 
I don't have a whole lot of faith in the, in the corporations um, to look out for anyone's interest but their own. Um, but if once we start understanding what what good interactions look like, you know, maybe as consumers we can we can force uh, these these people to make these products that that are going to hopefully make us better people. Um, you know, sorry, I've got a little off into the weeds there, <laughs> but um, that's that's my main fear. And and also as a little aside. I think it's absolutely vital that um, when we're talking to an AI or when we're interacting with a lifelike artificial, you know, machine, that, that, that interaction be out in the open. I want that AI to tell me, hi, I'm automated. Let's talk about car insurance <laughs> or whatever, because you're right. I don't want to sit there and talk about weather with that thing, but I don't want to treat it exactly like I would treat a human being. Um, unless, by the way, unless it's like 50 years from now and these things are like incredibly smart and it would be freaking totally worthwhile to talk to it. It'd be like having a conversation with like, you know, your, your smart aunt or something. Um, but, but I would want that I would want that information up front. You know, I want it to be flagged because I want to know if I'm talking to something that's real or something that's not. Um, and I want to know my boundaries are going to change depending on that information. Um, and, and I think it's important. So what, what will be the first, I mean, you're, 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 you have a PhD in robotics. So what, what do you think is going to happen in the near future? What is something that's going to be built that's really just going to blow our minds? You know, everybody's always looking for, for like whatever, like a new, something totally new, some kind of crazy app that's going to come out of nowhere and blow our minds. Well, that's, you know, it's highly doubtful that anything like that is going to happen in the next five years because Science is incredibly iterative, and where you often, I think, see real breakthroughs is not with something, an atomic thing being created completely new that blows everybody away, but often when you get connections between two things that already exist, and then you suddenly realize, oh, wow, you know, peanut butter and jelly, uh, here we go, it's a whole new world. Um, and with that, you know, I really... This Alexa thing, this, this, these smart assistants that are now physically taking, physically manifesting themselves in our homes, in the places where we spend most of our time socially, in our kitchen, and in, in my office where I'm at right now, um, they have established a beachhead <laughs> in our homes now. Um, they started on our phones, and they're in some of our cars, and now they're in our homes. And I think that as this web spreads, slowly and they add more ability to these personal AI assistants and my conversations with Alexa get more complex and there starts to become a dialogue. I think that slow creep is going to result in me sort of snapping to attention in five years and going, Oh, Holy crap. <laughs> I just like talked about, I just talked about like what's the best present to buy for my, 10 year old daughter with Alexa, uh, you know, based on the last like 10 years that I've spent ordering stuff off of Amazon and everything she knows about me. Like that's, that's going to be the moment. I think it's going to be something that creeps up on us and it's going to show up in these monthly updates, you know, to, to these devices um, as they creep through our houses and take control of more stuff in our environments and just, uh, you know, increase their ability to interact with us at all times. It'll, it'll be your Weizenbaum moment. 
you know, it'll be, it'll be a relationship moment. Yeah. yeah. And then I'll know right then whether I value that relationship. By the way, I just wrote a short story all about this called Iterations. Um, I joined the XPRIZE Science Fiction Advisory Council, and they're really focused on optimistic futures, right? So they, they, got, they brought together all of these science fiction authors and they said, write some stories 20 years in the future, optimism, people, utopias, <laughs> you know, let's do some good stuff. And, and I wrote a story exactly about a guy who comes back. 20 years later, he finds his wife and he realizes that she's essentially uh, been carrying on a relationship with an, with an AI that's been seeded with all of his information, right? And she at first used it as a tool to get over depression at having mysteriously lost her husband, but now it's become a part of her life. And, and you know, and the question in the story is, is that optimistic or is that a pessimistic future? And my feeling is that People use technology to survive, and we can't judge them for it. <laughs> we can't tell them, oh, you're living in a terrible dystopia. You're a horrible person. You don't understand human interactions because you spend all your time with a machine. Well, no. If, you're, if you've got severe depression and, and this is what keeps you alive, then, um, then, that's, you, then that's an optimistic future, <laughs> right? Um, and, and who are we to judge? So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I you like know, thinking I, and writing stories about it. I don't think I'll ever get any answers <laughs> out of myself. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that, uh, you know, Siri has a name. I, like, I have to whisper it too, because I have, I, have, I have them all. <laughs> so I have to watch like everything I say. Um, <laughs> that product has a name. Uh, Microsoft has Cortana, obviously. But Google mm -hmm. is uh, the Google Assistant. They, they, they didn't name it. They didn't personify it. Do you have any, yeah. any speculation? I mean, not, not any firsthand knowledge, but would you even have speculation as to why that would be the case? I mean, I think Alexa is a reference to the, to the, uh, it's got a hard X and it's a reference to the library at Alexandria, but, um, yeah, that's interesting, but I didn't know. Well, also you want to choose, you literally want to choose a, a, a series of phonemes that are, that are not, uh, high frequency, right? Because you don't want to constantly be, uh, be waking the thing up. What's also interesting about Alexa is that it's a, it's a luh sound, which is difficult for children to make. And so kids can't actually use Alexa until they, I know this from, from uh, <laughs> extreme experience. Uh, they can't actually, most of them can't say Alexa. They say Alexa when they're little. And so she doesn't respond to little kids, <laughs> which is <laughs> crucial because little kids are the worst and they're always telling her to to play stupid songs that I don't want to hear. <laughs> uh, can't you um, change the trigger word, actually? Uh, you know, I think you can, but I think you're pretty limited. I think right. you can change it to Two echo, but that's it. Right, right. Yeah. right. Um, you know, I'm not sure why exactly Google would make that decision. I'm sure it was a, that it was a serious decision. It's not the decision that every other company made. Um, but I think it's a, I, I would guess that it's not the, the, the greatest situation because People like to anthropomorphize the objects that they interact with. It creates familiarity, and it also, again, reinforces that this is an interaction with a person. It has a person's name, right? Um, so, I mean, if you're talking to something, what do we talk to? What's the only thing that we've ever talked to in the history of humankind that was able to respond in English? Freaking another human being, right? So why would you call that human being Google? It doesn't make any sense. Maybe they just wanted to reinforce their brand name um, again and again and again. Well, but, I noticed uh, it just that, seems uh, like a dumb decision. 
Right. I noticed that you you give gender to Alexa every time you refer to it. She um, has a female name and a female voice. Right. So of course but it's I still do. not an it. Um, uh, if I was defining it, as, you know, for a dictionary or something, I would obviously define the entity that is Alexa as an it. But the the most optimal interaction that I can have with her is she's intentionally piggybacking on human interaction, which is smart because that's the easiest way for people to interact because that's what we've been involved to do. So I am more than happy to, uh, to bend to her wishes and, and utilize my interaction with her as naturally as I can, because she's clearly trying to present herself as a female voice uh, living in a box <laughs> in my kitchen. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm completely happy, of course, to, uh, to interact with her in that way because it's most efficient. So as, as we draw to the end here, you, you talked about, you know, optimism and, and you came to this conclusion that different ways the future may unfold. It may be hard to call the ball on whether that's good or bad. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but those nuances aside, generally speaking, are you, what are you, are you optimistic about the future? I am. I'm, <laughs> I am like frighteningly optimistic and everything I see, I, I have some kind of natural level of optimism that's built into me. And, uh, I am, it is often at odds with what I am seeing in the world. Um, and yet it's still there. Um, it's like, uh, you know, trying to sit on a beach ball in a swimming pool, you push it down, but it kind of like floats right back up to the surface. So, um, I feel like human beings make tools. That's the most fundamental thing about people. And that part of making tools is, is being afraid of what we've made. I think that's also a really great innate human instinct. Um, <laughs> probably the reason that we're around as long as we have been. Um, and, and I think every new tool we build, every time it's more powerful than the one before it, we make a bigger bet on ourselves. Uh, being a species worthy of that tool. And um, I believe in humanity. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's a bet worth making. And I think that not everybody is good, you know, not everybody is evil. But I think in the end, the composition, we're going to get, you know, we're going to keep going forward and we're going to, we're going to get somewhere someday. (laughs) So I'm mostly just excited. I'm excited to see what the future is going to bring. Who do you write for? Like of, of all the people listening, you'd be like, oh, the people who like my books are? <laughs> oh, the people who are very similar to me, I guess, in taste. I mean, I, of course, I write for myself. I, uh, I get interested in something, um, you know, and then I, uh, I think a lot about it. Sometimes I do a lot of research on it, and then I, and then I write it. And, and I trust that, you know, someone else is going to be interested in that. Um, it's very hard for me it's impossible for me to predict what people are going to want. And I, I can't do it. I didn't go get a degree in robotics because I wanted to, you know, write science fiction. I mean, <laughs> I like robots. That's why I studied robots. That's why I write about robots. Now I'm just very lucky that there's anybody out there that's interested in reading <laughs> this stuff uh, that I'm interested in writing. So yeah, I don't, I don't put a whole lot of thought into, into pleasing, um, an audience, you know, um, I just do the best I can. What's the Clockwork Dynasty about? And I, it's out already, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's out. It's been out a couple of weeks and I, um, I just got back from a book tour, which is why I might be like hoarse uh, from talking about it. But yeah, so, so the idea behind the Clockwork Dynasty 
is uh, it's told in two parts. One part is set in the past, and the other part is set in the present. And in the past, it imagines a race of human-like machines, like built from automatons, that are serving the great empires of antiquity, and they're blending in with humanity and hiding their identity. And in the present day, these same automatons are still alive, and they are running out of power, and they're cannibalizing each other in order to stay alive. And an anthropologist discovers that they exist, and she goes on this Indiana Jones-style around-the-world journey to figure out who made these machines in the distant past and why and how to save their race and resupply their power. And so it's this really epic journey that takes place over thousands of years and all across Russia and Europe and China and the United States. Um, and, and I just had a hell of a good time writing it because <laughs> it's all my favorite moments in history. I love clockwork automatons. I've always loved um, court automatons, you know, that, that were built in the, in the um, you know, the 17th century and around then. Uh, and yeah, I, I just had a great time writing it. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much um, for taking an hour to have the most fascinating conversation about robots I think I've ever had. And um, I <laughs> hope we you. can have you come back another time. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me, Byron. I had a great time. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.